Blog Talk Radio.
and that we've honed it so that we can bring the bring you the skills and techniques that you will need to set you on your path to becoming a rifleman. And we're going to do this in a two-day course, Saturday and Sunday. It usually runs from about 8.30 till about 5 on both days. In addition to the rifle marksmanship that you're going to get, and when I talk about fundamentals, I'm not telling you about uh, a basics course. Uh, it's none of the uh, – it's, it's no baby stuff here. This is the same stuff that you're going to need no matter where your rifle marksmanship path takes you. If you're going to become a uh, uh, a competition shooter, this is exactly what you need to get you on the path to going there. Now, we're not going to make you a high-power shooter in two days. But what we will do is instill the information in you so that you can have the fundamentals, the things that you're going to need, uh, that a lot of times it takes folks 20, 30 years to get all of this information in little bits and pieces and figuring it out on their own. We're going to give it to you uh, in two days so that you can have a good, solid uh, start on it. <clears throat> this includes uh, how to build a stable shooting position in prone, sitting, and standing, how to use your sling to assist you in keeping the rifle steady, how to execute the shot by the six steps, which includes uh, your uh, respiratory cycle, trigger squeeze, uh, how you're supposed to use the sights, how you're supposed to focus on them, <clears throat> uh, determining your natural point of aim and shifting it onto the target. We're going to talk to you about uh, rifleman's cadence, which is uh, how to fire uh, an aimed shot every three to four seconds and hit your target out to 500 yards. We're going to talk to you about uh, the rifleman's bubble, how to close off all of the uh, exterior uh, stimuli and focus just on yourself, your rifle, and your target. We're going to teach you about inches, minutes, and clicks. And this is the kind of the mathematical, mechanical part, which deals with ballistics and allows you to understand the process of sighting in your rifle, how to get it sighted in, how to use the, uh, the incremental devices on your rifle to sight your rifle in. You're going to get all of this, including two solid days of safety. And I believe that's one of the most important things that we do is we instill in folks an understanding and a respect for rifle safety. When they're handling the rifle, how to understand when a rifle is clear. Uh, and uh, on top of that, wait, there's more. For the first 10,000 callers, you're going to get uh, several hours of American history. Now, we can't give you every bit of American history. America has such a tremendously uh, rich and colorful history. But we can give you the very beginning. We can give you a place to start off on your quest for understanding uh, American history and what the, the people who started the nation, what their vision for the nation was, by talking to you about the events of April 19, 1775. That's the, what the day that that the colonists stood together in ranks at Lexington, on Lexington Green, at the North Bridge in Concord, and then along Battle Road, all the way from Concord back to Boston, which and, uh, and then the beginning, which began the siege of Boston. So we're going to talk to you about 
that day, what happened, who the players were, why they did what they did, and then and what they did. So you'll have an understanding of the events of April 19, 1775. And we, once again, this is another part of our uh, trade, of our craft that we really have down. Uh, it's not going to be a dry recital of facts, uh, like uh, out of a history book. We're going, to tell you, we're going to tell you, it's what we call telling the story. We're going to tell you the story uh, in a very passionate and detail-oriented uh, fashion. And you're going to enjoy it. Uh, it never fails that folks, when I talk to folks at the end of an event, and I ask them, uh, you know, about the good and bad of the course and what they liked or what they didn't like. The one of the things I always hear is, man, the sheeting was great. I learned a tremendous amount, but the history that really uh, I didn't know that, or I didn't know uh, about the events of that day, or or the storytelling was uh, was really fantastic, and that was my favorite part, or my son's favorite part, or my daughter's favorite part. <clears throat> so. Don't think that uh, that the two days that there's going to be a second wasted any of it because we pack it pretty full, and you're going to enjoy your apple seed uh, two-day marksmanship course. Not only that, but it's going to help you uh, in several ways. First of all, when you come to an event, you're going to whether you know it or not, you may not even know that you're doing this, but you're going to set yourself a goal of improving your rifle marksmanship, and then by the end of the weekend, you're going to meet, and in most cases, exceed that goal. Once you do that, what's the next, what's the logical follow-up on that, and it's, what's next? What can I do next? What goal can I set for myself now uh, that I can meet and exceed? Where can I go next? What can I do next? How can I help? How can I make sure that the freedoms and liberties that I enjoy by virtue of being a citizen of the United States of America, what can I do to ensure that those freedoms and liberties are not lost? <clears throat> this is going to set you on a path to, uh, to much greater things. So don't be scared, folks. Uh, there's, uh, uh, there's plenty of... Uh, Plenty of opportunity for you to help to preserve the rights and freedoms uh, that we, uh, as Americans, that we uh, enjoy. <clears throat> All right. Uh, well, let me don't skip over this. Let me tell you that if you uh, if you'd like to attend an event. The uh, easiest way to find an event is to go to our homepage, and that's rwva.org, rwva.org, RomeoWhiskeyVictorAlpha.org. That's our homepage. On the homepage, there's a list of tabs across the top. The second from the left says Appleseed. You put your cursor on that, and you'll get a drop-down menu. On the drop-down menu, select Schedule, and that will take you to a page that has uh, – uh, like a paragraph uh, uh, about the uh, about finding events, and then there's a map of the United States, and they're split up into states. You put your cursor on the state where you wish to attend an event, and click on it, and it'll pull up another window that gives you a 
listing of the events in that state. Now, if you live close to a border in your state and uh, <clears throat> and you'd like to attend an event, it may be uh, just as easy for you to attend an event in a neighboring state. There may be one uh, there that's closer or that's uh, that's on the date that you would like to do it. Then you can go to the there's a hot link embedded in the text above the map of the United States. You can click on that and it'll give you uh, a listing of all the events going on across the nation. And every weekend of the year, there is an apple seed rifle marksmanship two-day course that's uh, being conducted within a reasonable driving distance of you. So do not fear, good citizens. Anytime you wish to take to attend an apple seed rifle marksmanship event, there is one within a reasonable driving distance of you. And when I say reasonable driving distance, I don't mean uh, uh, that it's five minutes away. I mean, it's reasonable. And by reasonable, I mean you're not going to have to run uh, 20 miles on foot so that you can throw yourself into the battle at the end of a uh, a 20-hour run in order to uh, defend your rights, your freedoms, and your liberty. That's what the folks did on April 19th. They got word of the uh, British uh, march on Concord. They grabbed up their gear, and they took off running. Some of them from as far as 20 to 25 miles away, they took off running. And they ran through the night so that they could meet the British regulars and engage them. They didn't uh, run for a while and then uh, and then find a nice uh, hotel and spend the night and get up the next day and start running again. They ran through the night, arrived at their location, readied their uh, their muskets, and threw themselves into the battle. So a reasonable driving distance is, uh, well, I, my first apple seed was, uh, I think it was about 1,400 miles. And... Uh, so I consider anything under 1,400 miles to be a reasonable driving distance, right? <clears throat> You're going to find one a lot closer than that. So go to rwva.org. Put your cursor on the uh, second tab from the left that says Appleseed, select Schedule. You get the drop-down menu. Put your cursor on the state where you'd like to attend an event. Click on that, and you'll get a listing of the events. And then once again, if you want to look at the events across the nation, there's a hot link embedded in in the text above the map. Click on that and you get a listing of all the events nationwide. Then, don't just think about attending an apple seed event. Uh, the, our, our lives are filled with, uh, with would have and should have and could haves and things that we missed, things that we wanted to do, and we just never got around to doing them. Don't let this be one of those. Don't let this be one of those because it's not just – this isn't a chore. This is something that you're going to absolutely love. You're going to meet a bunch of great folks there. Like I said, you're going to set yourself a goal of improving your rifle marksmanship, and you're going to meet and exceed that goal. <clears throat> you're going to get a good solid foundation in safety. You're going to hear some really fantastic stories about real American history, about real American heroes. You're going to get uh, uh, an introduction. You're going to get an inkling. You're going to, you're going to, we're going to put you on the path to understanding what the founders' vision for this nation was. Because we're we're veering off course, and we need to uh, readjust 
our, our navigational uh, path in order to stay on course with what the the original intent of the founders was. And you're just going to have a uh, a really good time. And how do I know this? Because I've been doing apple seeds for, geez, uh, over five years now. And, uh, and I've done a minimum of one a month for over five years. And in some months I've done two and three. In one month I did four. So I've done a lot of them. And the one thing that I that uh, that spans all of them is that uh, every person. Well, there's been a couple of folks who didn't enjoy the events, but in most cases, these were folks who I don't think they enjoyed living at all. I think living it, uh, for them was a very painful experience, and I, I don't know why they insisted on continuing it, but. Uh, but generally, every single person has enjoyed, tremendously enjoyed, their attendance of a two-day Ralph Markenship event. I know this because uh, you can tell if a person enjoyed it or not. Because whenever the event ends, uh, if people don't like what they just went through, believe me, you can tell. They grab all their gear, they, they, they load everything up, and they take off, and they get the heck out of there. Because they didn't enjoy it, and they want to put it behind them. They want to erase it from their memory. I never see that happen at an apple seat. You know what I do see happen is folks saying, hey, uh, they don't actually come out and say it, but it's like, uh, we don't have to go yet, do we? Uh, can we help you guys? Can we help you, uh, uh, you know, clean up? Can we help you take the target line down? Can we help you get this done? And then they want to stand around, and they want to talk. And that is the sign of folks who just enjoyed what they went through. And listen, <laughs> it's not just a, uh, this isn't just a little uh, quick shooting event. We put you through your paces. You're going to shoot uh, a lot. Uh, you're going to shoot uh, around 500 rounds at an event. And uh, you're going to get put through kind of a workout. I mean, there's a lot of folks that, uh, that at the end of the two-day course, even at the end of the one-day course, they're thinking, man, I really enjoyed this, but I can't wait to get home uh, or to my hotel and get a hot bath and uh, and take some uh, uh, a leave or something. Because uh, very rarely do you ever go out to the range and say, you know what, I'm going to uh, I'm going to stay here at the range for eight hours. And I'm going to get up and down and up and down in different positions. Uh, and uh, I'm going to do this all day long. So uh, it's a good workout. And yet the folks, uh, they've got smiles on their faces at the end of the day. At the end of the day on Saturday, a lot of folks who were maybe only planning on coming on one day because they brought their kids with them, and they figured their kids uh, – First of all, they didn't want to be there in the first place. And second of all, they didn't figure they were going to last more than a day. At the end of the day on Saturday, the kids are hopping up and down saying, can we come back tomorrow, Mommy? Can we come back tomorrow, Dad? And uh, and that always brings a smile to my face. And usually it brings a, a smile and uh, a bit of a shocked expression to the faces of the parents. Because you could tell when the kids got there that uh, some of them, I'm not saying all kids are like this, but some of them, when the kids got there, they were uh, they were the kind of kids who apparently uh, uh, 
apparently don't seem to be made happy by anything but uh, iPods and video games and stuff like that. And yet, by the end of the day on Saturday, uh, they have been uh, reborn and uh, reborn hardcore. So I know that this is a different kind of event, a different kind of uh, a rifle marksmanship course because I see it over and over. That's one of the things that keeps me uh, that keeps me staying with it because it's not the paycheck because I get zero dollars for this. I get zero dollars for the radio show. I get zero dollars for any of my involvement in Appleseed. Like I said, all of us, all of the Appleseed folks are doing this out of a, out of the goodness of their heart and out of a sense of duty, out of a sacred responsibility to their nation. <clears throat> so find an event, decide on it, and then when you're on that page, when you're on the uh, event uh, page, then look to the right of the uh, on the schedule. You'll see two other hot links. One says information. <clears throat> that has information for that specific event on that specific date. You can click on that, and you can find out uh, directions for where it is, who's hosting it, uh, who you can contact for more information. Sometimes they'll give uh, hotels or restaurants or things like that what to bring. And then right under that is the other hot link that says register. Now, do yourself a favor and don't pass this by. When you decide uh, on where you want to uh, attend and the date, then move the cursor over, put it on top of register, click on that. That'll take you to the the third-party software to the Eventbrite page that we use for registration. And... uh, Go ahead and get yourself signed up for the course. <clears throat> and it does a couple of things. One, make sure that you have a, a place on the line. Uh, I'm not going to tell you that you can't walk on to uh, a lot of the events because you, you probably can. But there are some that are sold out. So you don't want to get to an event all hyped up and uh, and find there's not a place for you on the line. It also saves you uh, 10 bucks off of the walk-on fee. It's 80 bucks if you walk on the day. 70 bucks if you uh, pre-register for it. <clears throat> and it helps us by allowing us to know how many people are coming to the event. That lets us know how many instructors to send, how much gear, etc. And uh, when you're doing thousands of events through the course of the year all across the United States. Uh, and even Alaska and Hawaii now, so it's not just a continental United States, it allows us to uh, to be able to correctly schedule instructors and send their right amount of gear. All right, because that we have to know uh, a good deal in advance of kind of how, how many people are coming, because we have to get uh, plane tickets and hotel reservations, uh, etc. I order porta potties and stuff like that. So. Once you've decided, uh, once you flip the switch, then go ahead and pre-register for that. Now, let me tell you about the Rifleman's Opportunity Card right here while I'm on this, because while you're on the Eventbrite page, there's also a uh, uh, another section there where you can become a member of RWVA for 20 bucks, and that gives you a one-year membership in the program. And all the funds, of course, go toward helping to run the program and when you go to your Appleseed Rifle Marksmanship two-day course, and if you don't 
shoot to rifleman standards, which is 210 or above on the Army Qualification Test, the AQT. If you don't shoot to rifleman standards that day, and believe me, this is not an easy task. Anyway, if you don't shoot to uh, rifleman standards that day, then having the paid receipt for your uh, Appleseed weekend and the receipt for your RWVA membership, you show those to the shoot boss there and say, look, I'm going to keep coming until I get my uh, rifleman's patch. And you can do it for free. You don't have to pay any more. Uh, he'll put a sticker on your RWVA membership card that says uh, you can attend uh, the events for the next year or until you shoot the rifleman standards free of charge. All right? So that's a deal right there. And uh, uh, if you need more information about it, just go to our homepage, rwva.org, and the uh, the information is there under the Rifleman's Opportunity Card Program. <clears throat> All right. Uh, at the beginning of the show, we always give folks an opportunity to call in and thank their local crew members, thank uh, any of the folks in the program that they're working with. Uh, and that could be... Uh, somebody who's just uh, passed uh, a progress check, any of the new ITs who've taken a hat, somebody's made full instructor or made shoot boss or shot to rifleman standards, or somebody who's really helping out uh, as far as uh, doing promotions or admin work, any of the blue hats, et cetera, anybody that's in your local crew, or somebody that came to an event and you really enjoyed it, or uh, any of those folks, anybody that would like to call in, and thank your local folks, then uh, we provide the time at the beginning for you to do that. And the number is 347-308-8790. 347-308-8790. And, uh, and I want to thank... <clears throat> Uh, Jimmy, and you guys know that uh, uh, if you've been listening to the show, <clears throat> you know that Jimmy uh, out in New Mexico is known as Desert Eagle, I believe, on the forum. That uh, he uh, he recently uh, ran a program where they put together packages to send to the troops overseas in Afghanistan for Christmas. And uh, they put together over 2,500 packages to send out there. And I want to thank him again. Now, we had him on the show talking about it. And, Jimmy, of course, if you're listening, you're welcome to uh, call in and give us an update on it. I'll put you on the air so you can uh, so you can give folks kind of an update on it. But uh, I wanted to thank you because <clears throat> the packages are already arriving in Afghanistan and uh, uh, let's see, I believe uh, Jimmy sent me a uh, one of the emails, and I'm going to read it to you real quick. Uh, let's see, I believe this is from the mother of one of the troops. It says, uh, Dear Scott, my daughter talked to Josh last night, and they had received half of the packages, and they were thrilled. They said these were the absolute best packages they had ever received from any source back home. They were particularly impressed 
by the real-world consideration of their needs, as into the useful additions to the usual fare of personal care products, and they loved the gun cleaning supplies. I knew you'd want to know. Thank you so very much again. Uh, Merry Christmas to you and yours, Lori. So they are starting to receive the packages in uh, Afghanistan, and thanks, okay? That's what I want to tell you is thank you because uh, uh, it's a great job. And uh, I don't have to tell any of you guys now, and Jimmy said that they had loaded it up, too, with a lot of uh, rifle care products. And, yes, the military does give you some stuff to clean uh, your rifle with, but it's pretty basic, and uh, and uh, and it's not always the best stuff. You know, it's the stuff that the government bought from the cheapest uh, source they could buy. And uh, Jimmy loaded up the packages with uh, uh, a bunch of different rim oils and gun lubes and boar snakes, stuff like that. <clears throat> and that's very important, right? Because we know this as riflemen, we know that. Uh, that having a rifle that isn't packed full of dirt and carbon, uh, it's pretty important to making the shot. And making the shot is important when your life is in danger. These guys aren't shooting at paper. They're shooting at at folks that are possibly trying to kill them. And uh, they need to make the shot, and they need to have their rifles clean to do so. So thanks for... uh, for putting all those packages together, and Jimmy and I have talked about this before in the air, that uh, I've been a soldier overseas in, uh, in a rough, ugly country, and and getting anything from back home was a big deal. Getting just a postcard from somebody was a big deal. I carried the postcard around in my pocket uh, until it uh, until I turned it into tissue paper and it dissolved. I don't know why, it's just a connection with home. And then getting a package like this, which was chock full of stuff, including, uh, uh, I guess, a special run of knives that uh, Smith & Wesson made for uh, for the uh, Christmas for Our Troop program. Uh, and uh, the gun cleaning stuff and uh, personal hygiene stuff like that. So thanks, guys. Thanks for all the work because uh, putting together 2,500 packages and getting them all the shipped out uh, takes a great deal of effort and money, et cetera. And, uh, and we give our thanks to you. All right, now the rest of you guys, if you have somebody that you want to uh, call in and say thanks over the air, we'd love for you to do it. <clears throat> call screen or maybe you can let me know either uh, in my ear or uh, or in the information box there beside your box. I got a, a note that just flashed on here that says caller you are not on the air. Caller you are not on the air has dropped. I have no idea what that means. Anyway, call screener, if you uh, uh, if you can let me know if the uh, if this signal's going out or not, I'd appreciate that. <clears throat> okay. Uh, 
tonight's show, Washington Crossing the Delaware. What I wanted to do is discuss, and I'm gonna, and we're gonna talk about some other stuff before we do that. But I want to let you know that uh, we're gonna discuss the uh, the battles of Trenton and Princeton. We're going to discuss the Battle of Trenton and Princeton uh, tonight because we'll have uh, Dr. Fisher is going to come on to talk about his book, Washington's Crossing. And and I wanted to get some of the details and stuff out to you guys before we do that. Before we do that, let me let me. uh, let me make sure that I am indeed on the air. Call screener, can you uh, can you either put it in my ear or put in the information on your on your thing there that either I'm on or I'm off? Uh, I know it says on there, okay, now you're on, but uh, can you refresh that or can you put it in my ear that uh, that I'm going out live or uh, if I've been dropped? Okay, well, maybe they were talking about his, I think they were talking about his call, because I see he, I see that uh, it's just showing, uh, well, it says zero callers, so I don't know if I've been dropped, uh, <clears throat> I'm going to keep on talking until uh, until we get, until either he comes back on or uh or I get a different call. Let's see what you can do. You can call uh, if if one of you guys can call uh, my cell phone and just let me know if you're hearing me. The number is two five four two one seven one three two five two five four two one seven one three two five. That way, uh, well, know if I'm going out or not. Uh, I know we're having bad weather here in Texas, and uh, I don't know what's health, what's happening across the rest of the nation. Uh, I know that my that being plagued with uh, with uh, not always great service from Blog Talk is not a surprise. So <clears throat> anyway, I see that the call screen is back on. Call screener, if you can uh, if you can hear me, if I'm going out over the air, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, putting that in the information box so that I'll know. Anyway, what we're going to do, we're going to talk about uh, uh, hold on just a second. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay, so we are still going out. All right, so what we're going to do in in, uh, in just a little while, we're going to talk about the the details of the Battle of Trenton and Trenton because I'd like to, and I know that we've talked about this before, but it's one of my favorite parts of the American Revolutionary War because it was such a, an important part of the American Revolutionary War, the Battles of Trenton and Princeton. And uh, uh, David Hackett Fisher uh, wrote his book, Washington's Crossing, which is an absolutely fantastic book uh, about 
these specific battles. If you like the uh, Paul Revere's Ride, which is a, a narrative of the events of April 19, 1775, with the battles at Lexington, uh, the North Bridge in Concord, and uh, Battle Road back to Boston, and the beginning of the Siege of Boston, then, then you're going to love Washington's Crossing because it's the same style with the same amount of detailed information. And uh, and he just does just a, you know, a fantastic job uh, at uh, at this story, the same way he did with Paul Revere. <laughs> and uh, I spoke with uh, uh, Dr. Fisher's wife, uh, and she said that uh, he has indeed – uh, gotten better, you know. I think I told you guys that he had uh, he had been bitten by a tick, I guess, and he had managed to get himself uh, one of the forms of Lyme disease, and he had just spent, jeez, uh, I don't know if it had been over a month that he had spent like in a almost like in a malarial coma, and. Uh, and right uh, balancing right there on uh, on a knife blade with his with life and death and and uh, he's come back from it but you know he was he was very seriously injured by the disease which is uh it's not uncommon for it to be fatal and uh we certainly want to keep him in our prayers and and wish him uh, a full recovery from that anyway he's going to come on in the next uh uh, either next week or the week after that, because I wanted him to come on at the right at the time of the of uh, the actual battles of Princeton and Trenton, Princeton and Trenton, so that uh, so that you guys would have like a little bit of the feeling of what it was actually like at that time. <clears throat> so he's going to come on and talk about that, and then tonight, a little bit later tonight, we're going to talk about. Uh, uh, I'll give you some of the rundown on what occurred at the battles of Trenton and Princeton. Okay, before we do that, uh, I wanted to talk to you. We talked uh, last week about uh, shooting from the standing position. And uh, tonight I want to talk real quick about uh, shooting from the seated position. Now, whenever you're uh, – and the reason for shooting from the seated position is because uh, you can't determine – what your surroundings are going to look like, right? If you're out in the field shooting, you can't determine uh, every time what your surroundings are going to look like. If if you're laying on uh, a piece of ground that's sloping away from you and somebody's taken a, a mower and mowed it all uh, nice and clean, then you're going to be able to see your targets in the prone position. And if you can, then that's the best position to take because it's uh, it's one of the steadiest supported positions. But you may be in a field that has uh, that might be sloping up from you, and there might be grass in it that is uh, knee high or, uh, or or even ankle high. Grass doesn't have to be very high for you to be able to lose your target once you get down in prone. You know, you have any hardly any grass at all. You get into prone, and if the ground isn't sloping steeply away from you, you're going to lose your target. So you need to be able to get yourself up high enough to see above any obstacles up above you. And the only way to do that might be to be in the seated. Now, you can shoot from standing in most of these cases, but uh, standing is is the least stable of these three positions. 
So you want to try and get, you want to always uh, default to the most stable position you can get. If you get in the prone, wham, slam down to the prone and get in the prone. That uh, gives you the best chance at getting a stable position. And uh, for you guys out there in, uh, in combat land, it presents the smallest target. You know, once you're down, once you're down in prone, you present a very small target. If you're standing, you have the least stable, and you usually make a pretty good target because you got the majority of your body exposed. So, uh, you want to pick the most stable position uh, with your ability to see the target from that position. And in a lot of cases, that's going to be sitting. And uh, I know that when I first started uh, getting in the correct seated position, for me, it was very, very painful. And uh, and it was not sustainable. I had uh, some uh, pretty uh, some pretty exciting uh, spinal injuries. Uh, I've had uh, five severely damaged and broken vertebrae in my back, and uh, and a couple of them are still damaged very badly. And I've got a chunk of bone about the size of a thumbnail stuck in my spinal cord. So uh, so a lot of the positions are uh, uh, cause pain in the beginning. All right? That's one of the reasons that as an instructor we tell you not to tell your folks to find a comfortable position because doing, uh, doing any of these positions correctly means that, uh, that quite often uh, they're not going to be comfortable. We don't want people to think that because they are uncomfortable that their position is wrong. All right? So that's why we tell, you, we tell you not to use the word comfortable. We don't say get into a prone position, get a good comfortable position, because in most cases it's not going to be comfortable. It's certainly not going to be comfortable in most of the seated. And you don't want to tell people that or give them the impression that if they are comfortable, uh, that they are if they are uncomfortable, that they're doing it wrong. All right. So, in order to, uh, in order for for you to get into a good position, uh, we tell folks that we want it to be a repeatable and sustainable position. Okay, a repeatable and sustainable. That means you need to be able to do it the same way every time, <clears throat> because uh, consistency is one of the keys of uh, making a good shot, doing the things that you do the same way every time, which eliminates variables uh, from the equation. So you do the same things, uh, do it the same way every time. And I'm not talking about having to make a slight adjustment if you need to make some type of adjustment in your position. I'm just talking about using the same position the same way uh, every time in order for it to remain consistent. And it's sustainable. That means that you can stay in that position long enough to make the shot. And uh, like I said, when I first did it, when I first got down into that seated uh, uh, cross-leg position, uh, my eyes were watering. And uh, and I started squeezing the trigger, and I, I'm not even sure how close I was looking at the target. Mainly I was just trying to get to the point where I heard the in-block eject uh, from my grand. So I could get out of the position. Okay, but but 
constant practice, getting down to that position uh, over and over, over a period of time, uh, finally allowed me to be able to get into the cross-leg position and have it to be sustainable. It's never going to be comfortable for me, and it's probably not going to be comfortable for most folks. Although, you know, I've seen some folks uh, able to get into the cross-legged and then uh, to be able to lean forward and put their elbows on the ground and even uh, put their elbows, uh, I mean, put their head, rest their head in their hands on their elbows like that. And uh, apparently, I guess, they could drift off to sleep. That's not gonna, That's not something that I can do. So, but I can get into it and I can sustain it now. And it has actually become... Uh, if I needed to shoot fast and accurately, then uh, this is one of the best positions that I have for shooting fast and accurate. Uh, the seated position is one of my most accurate positions now. Like I said, especially if I need to put a lot of rounds very quickly and accurately downrange, then the seated is probably be one of the really good uh, positions for me. So how do you get into it? Well, the first thing you do is whenever you're, you're looking at your target and you're facing head onto it, then when you get down into to your position, you want to automatically orient yourself about, uh, I don't know, 35 to, say, 55 degrees to your strong side. You're going to orient yourself that way as you're getting down. And the the actual direction you're facing, the number of degrees that you're orienting yourself, is going to depend on your body geometry, how long your arms are, your legs, etc. That's what makes things a little bit different for everybody. Everybody's body is a bit different. So you're going to orient yourself to your strong side, and by strong side, I'm talking about which hand uh, you use to shoot with, to pull, to squeeze the trigger with. If you're right-handed, you're going to orient yourself the right side. That's your strong side. If you're left-handed, then your strong side is your left side. So you want to orient yourself uh, to your strong side as you're getting down into your position. And then uh, let me back up just a bit because uh, I want to tell you what I do uh, before I get into the seated. Uh, If I'm in a course of fire, or if I'm getting ready for a course of fire, like if I'm going to do stage two in the AQT, in my prep period, I'm actually rehearsing. That means I'm getting down in a position and getting back up and getting down in a position getting back up so that I'll know what I need to do to get in that position. So don't ever waste your prep time when uh, you're in stage two or anywhere in the uh, any of the courses of fire for the AQT. But what I do is in my prep period is I'll start over-breathing. I call it over-breathing. <clears throat> and I think I talked to you guys last week about uh, about tactical breathing. So that's what I actually do now is I do tactical breathing as I'm preparing to get into uh, any of the courses of fire, but especially for my stage two in the seated. I'm doing tactical breathing, and I'm over-breathing. That means I'm breathing, I'm taking in more oxygen than I usually do because you're getting ready to get down into the seated position, and especially if you're using the cross-leg position. When you get down in that position and you lean forward and put your elbows on your knees, then you're going to be forcing all of the organs below your diaphragm. You're going to be forcing them upwards. And what that does is that restricts now 
the ability of their diaphragm to fully uh, uh, expand and to pull in air. That means you're gonna, your breathing is going to be restricted when you get down to that position. So make sure that you have that you have been breathing above the normal amount. And I don't mean hyperventilate. I just mean breathing up to that point right before you begin to hyperventilate. Breathing to that point so that you're flooding your bloodstream with oxygen, with the extra oxygen you're going to need to run through that 60 seconds and uh, and get you through it. So I'm deep breathing before I get down to the position. Now, once I get down into the uh, into the seated position, I've got my my butt cheeks on the ground. I've got my legs folded across each other, and I lean forward. And my particular uh, way of doing it, my particular position, <coughs> is and, and we tell folks we want you to go forward, put your elbows forward of your knee, and and the reason we tell you that is because if you just have your elbow sitting on your knee, then that's the two two rounded or pointed surfaces, one sitting on top of the other. And what happens then if you whenever you fire your rifle and you go into recoil is you get some movement, right? And when you get that movement, it's going to jar your body, and when you jar the upper body, which is accepting most of the recoil, it's going to move that elbow off of its position on the knee. So we usually tell people, get that elbow forward of the knee. And that way, whenever your upper body accepts that recoil, your elbow can't pop off the knee because it's in front of it, all right? So that is actually like a uh, – it's like a, you can't hold on to something with your elbow, but you can put your elbow against something so that when it receives a recoil, that it can push back against the knee. For me, uh, my – strong side elbow goes forward of the knee, and uh, my support elbow goes into the crease that the knee and the upper thigh make, and <clears throat> if you practice getting into the seated position over and over, get into the uh, the position, then you'll you'll end up developing muscle memory, and what I mean by that is... Whenever you get down in the seated position, you don't have to wonder, is this the am I, is this right? Is this position right for me? Uh, because I don't remember if I had it like this last time or or if it was if it was more forward or if I was seated this way, etc. <clears throat> what will happen is all the pieces will go together like a puzzle. They'll fit into the places that they're supposed to fit, and your muscles will have a memory of their own that they need to put the puzzle together and have you in the correct seated position. But the only way you're going to get that is by practicing your seated. And you can do this. You don't have to be at the range to do this. You can do this uh, much more efficiently at home. And I tell folks that even if the seated position, if the cross-leg position is rough for you, and you can get any of you can get into any of the modified positions, all right? You find the one that works for you, but Always be working toward the most steady, which is bone on bone on bone on ground, all right? That's without anything being unsupported. You can eventually get to any of the positions you want to by practicing and rehearsing it. So what I did was at home, I would get down into that position. I would sit there. And at the beginning, I couldn't sit there more than, say, 20 or 30 seconds without feeling the pain. Well, as soon as I started getting the, the, the pain, I got out of the position, and uh, maybe I waited uh, 10 minutes or so, and I got back down in it again. 
Now, by repeated by repeatedly doing this, your initial you're stretching out your muscles, you're stretching out uh, the uh, well, you're stretching out your muscles so that you can, after a while, you can get into that position, and instead of uh, 20 seconds, you can be in it for 30 seconds. And uh, I'm not telling you to sit in that position until you until you start crying. I'm telling you get just get down into the position, and then uh, once you're in it and you feel like you got it right, get back out. Get out of it. Don't do it again. Do it again the next night. You keep doing this at your house, and it only takes, what, 30 seconds to do it once a night? You keep doing this, and you're going to be, you're going to be pleasantly surprised that at the end of uh, 30 days, you're going to get down in that position, and you're going to forget to get out in 30 seconds because uh, you've been sitting there for one minute, and you can still hold it. So you're going to uh, you're going to teach your body how to get into the position, and you're going to give it the muscle memory, so that whenever you get the fire command on stage two, you're going to be able to drop into that position, and your body is going to automatically go to the correct seated position because it now has a muscular memory of it. It has a blueprint in it that says uh, elbow goes here, the butt cheeks go here, the feet goes this way, and you know when it's right. Not because of a conscious knowledge of that what you're doing is right, because of a subconscious muscle memory knowledge that you have stored. So <clears throat> the best way to do it is slowly work towards the most stable by getting into the position uh, repeatedly at home. Uh, I'm going to tell you guys right here that the path to riflemen uh, – it doesn't – you don't make a major strides at the range. Uh, if you want to be a rifleman, I can tell you right now that you can make yourself a rifleman at home in your bedroom. All right, That's where the majority uh, of your efforts should be, uh, should be spent is in dry firing and in building muscle memory, rehearsing your positions in your home. And you can do that in the comfort and safety of your home, in your pajamas, in your underwear, buck naked if you want. And you will greatly improve your ability to shoot at the range when you're shooting, when you're line firing. The majority of your strides forward can all be done at home uh, in your bedroom. And that's where I would uh, spend the largest amount of time rehearsing my shooting techniques are at home. I still do. I still do uh, thousands of rounds of dry firing. I still do all my positional work and stuff at home. Because when I get to the range, all I'm doing then is checking my homework. I'm just checking to see if what I did is uh, is actually the exact thing I needed to do. Because I don't want to burn off three or 400 rounds trying to figure something out. All right, I want to figure it out at home. And then use those three or four hundred rounds to confirm that uh, that I've got it. Okay, so <clears throat> once you've gotten the fire command, you're going to drop down into the seated by uh, uh, orienting yourself uh, to your strong side. You're going to get down into the position. Before you get down in there, you're going to be over breathing, and you're going to be tactical breathing which is doing two things. One, it's uh, providing the oxygen that you need for your body, and two, it is helping you to focus. 
It's helping you to control your uh, autonomic responses and uh, to clear your mind and to take away uh, any of the jitters that you might be getting ready to to experience if you if you get those from being in a uh, uh, I don't want to call it competitive but but you are competing against yourself in a competitive situation. So you're going to be over breathing. You're going to drop down into a position that you have uh, rehearsed at home and developed the muscle memory for. You're going to place your elbows uh, either forward of your knees or in uh, the crease somewhere that the recoil will not move. Because once you move, then you've got to put it back where it was in order to be consistent. And how are you going to do that? Because uh, how do you know where exactly where it was? Or And it's going to eat up time. If you have to move your elbow back, I can guarantee it's going to take at least one second. All right? Now you only have 54 seconds for everything you're supposed to do in stage two. So don't do that to yourself because if you do that every round, then you just sliced off 10 seconds of your 55. So now you've got uh, 45 seconds to do everything you need. And if you're shooting at uh, rifleman's cadence, uh, one shot every two to three seconds, now you've got uh, 30 seconds to shoot. 10 seconds to get your elbows in place, that's 40 seconds. You only have 15 seconds left to do mag changes and uh, natural point of aim shifts, all right? <clears throat> okay, so you've gotten yourself down into your position. You've got your elbows right. You have gotten your sling into the uh, uh, the correct position. Now, you've done this in your prep period, in your rehearsal. you made any modifications that you need to your sling, such as tightening it, because it'll, it may be a bit different from your standing or prone. <clears throat> and then, now the first thing you're going to do in stage two is when you're going to hit your seated position, you're going to grab your mag and you're going to put it into the rifle. Then you're going to work the bolt, and then you're going to take the safety off. Now remember, in stage two, you've got two magazines, one two-rounder and one eight-rounder. So you're going to have your magazines <clears throat> setting in place where they need to be so that you know which one is a 2 and which one is the 8, and they're oriented correctly for you, etc. This isn't gaming, okay? You, uh, I, I guarantee you no matter what size magazine you have, you're going to have to change it at some point. So anytime you're doing that, there's no reason to say, okay, all right, to give myself uh, uh, extra training, I'm going to put one mag under my butt when I sit down so that I've got to look for it and then drag it out from under my butt. Uh, and I'm going to put the other mag where it's out of reach and I have to, like, crawl over to get it, all right? This isn't that kind of a uh, course. We're not going to give you obstacles and stuff to do. And it's not gaming. What it is is using your brains and training and preparing for this, all right? <clears throat> so... You're going to reach down, grab the two-round mag, put it in, work the bolt, and then take the safety off. And I tell you guys to go through this, to go through the actual actions, other than putting a mag into your rifle, go through the actual actions that you're going to to do in your prep period. Because once you get the fire command and you get down into the seated and start doing the stuff, then... You're having to think about it, and I can't tell you how many times, over and over, I see people go get down into the 
seated position. They look around for the mag, first of all. They look around to see where the mag is, and they pick one up, and they look at it, and they go, is this the right one? And they kind of shake it, and then they maybe second-guess yourself, put it down, pick up the other one. Maybe they got the right mag in. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they're going to fire two rounds out of the eight, drop it, put the two in, and then try and shoot eight out of the two and have to try and figure out what happened then, get the other one out, put it back in. Don't do that. Don't do that. You have a plan for this. Put the uh, two-round mag closest to you on the, uh, uh, if you're uh, right-handed, put it uh, on the left-hand side of the two mags, and uh, and then you put that mag in, work the bolt. Work the bolt. The round isn't going to go in by itself. You've got to work the bolt. And that's why I tell people to rehearse this, because, once again, I can't tell you how many times I've seen people put the mag in, get their NPOA, you know, quickly uh, determine their natural point of aim and shift it onto the target and then start squeezing the trigger and nothing's happening. And they're looking like, what? what's wrong? Well, they didn't work the bolt, all right? So work the bolt and then take the safety off because you're going to be required to have the safety on for transitions. Take the safety off as soon as you put the mag in and work the bolt because, once again, I see people all the time. They put the mag in. They work the bolt. Get their NPOA and, uh, and start squeezing and harder and harder. And you can see the whites on their knuckles from trying to squeeze that trigger right past the safety and make it shoot with the safety on. It's not going to. Then they got to stop and look at the rifle and go, what the heck's going on? Oh, the safety. Oh, the safety. Now they're flustered. So understand and rehearse this. You're going to go to the seated. You're going to take the two-round mag. You're going to put it in. You're going to work the bolt. You're going to take the safety off. You're going to get your natural point of aim, shift it on the target, and then begin your course of fire. You're going to fire two rounds. Bang, bang. Then you're going to drop that magazine. Don't try and get a third round out of a two-round mag. You're eating up your time. Bang, bang, drop the mag. New mag in. Work the bolt. You're going to have to work the bolt to get around in the chamber. Now, like I said, these are common mistakes I see people doing all the time. Put the wrong mag in, looking for the mags. Uh, putting a mag in, not working the bolt. Putting a mag in, working the bolt, not taking the safety off. Putting a mag in, working the bolt, taking the safety off, firing two rounds, getting a click on the third round and trying to figure out what happened. So use your prep period to go through this, to think about what you're going to do. Drop to the seated, mag in, work the bolt, safety off, natural point of aim, shift it on the target, bang, bang, mag out, new mag in, work the bolt, continue with the course of fire. That's what you're going to do uh, in order to get started. And then you're going to have to ensure that you make a natural point of aim shift in between each of your targets. Now, doing uh, in POA shifts is not something that is a uh, calculated science, right? You're not going to be able to say, I have to move uh, this uh, two degrees uh, to the right and then two degrees again. You're going to have to get used to doing it, and that's another thing that's going to be committed to you by muscle memory. You're not going to actually be able to measure how far your butt cheek tweaked over to get to the next target. 
You're just going to have to memorize it by muscle memory. But two things here. One, you have to start out with a good natural point of aim. That means on that first, before you take your first shot, you have to ensure that you have a good natural point of aim. Because if you don't, number one, you're not going to have a good group on that first target. And number two, you're going to take that bad NPOA with you every time you shift. Because you're going to, you're going to be shifting with the, uh, with the idea that you make your correct NPOA shift, and that puts you on the next target. But if you start out with a bad NPOA, that means you're taking that bad natural point of aim with you onto the second target. If you're high and left, because your uh, natural point of aim was high and left on your first target, and you do your NPOA shift, then you're going to take that same high and left with you, uh, unless it just happens to accidentally get uh, left behind in your NPOA shift. And that really shouldn't happen, right? Because if it does, that means that you can lose your NPOA. Uh, you can do an incorrect shift in between each one, and you shouldn't be doing that. You should be doing the correct shift between each of the targets, do a quick uh, affirmation that you have the correct natural point of aim, and then begin shooting. Now, one of the keys to this, too, is that uh, you're going to have to start shooting as quickly as possible in all your stages, all right? In all your stages, you're going to have to be shooting as quickly as possible in order to get this done. That means you, on the fire command, you... Uh, you orient uh, approximately, uh, you know, 30-plus degrees to your strong side. Get down into the seated. Get your body correct. You put the mag in. Work the bolt. Safety off. Begin your course of fire. Fire the two rounds. Drop that mag. Put the other mag in. Work the bolt. And continue with the course of fire. You're going to fire at the first target after you've made your uh, determine your natural point of aim and made sure that it's on there. You're going to shift your natural point of aim to the second target. And listen, you have to make the shifts. You can't muscle over. Uh, because I'm sure if you've done this before and if you've just tried muscling, you, you know exactly what happens. And everybody else does too. Because you have a good group on the first target. The second target will be a little bit wide, and the third target will be like a shotgun uh, pattern there. Because you can't muscle. Because what happens whenever you muscle uh, an NPOA shift is that everything looks right uh, as far as what you see with your eyes. Your sights are right where they should be. Everything, even if it's a nice steady hold, the front sight isn't moving at all. It doesn't matter because what happens is you've inserted muscle into the equation. All right. That means you have already have a force pressing and pulling to get the sights on the target. When you go into recoil, that is where this attacks you. You go into recoil, and that allows the muscles to exhibit force on the barrel again. And what they're trying to do, they're trying to go back to where the rifle wants to fire, or it's making you exert too much force if you're pulling. And that's where the muscle comes in. It's going to look, it's not like you're looking at the target and you say, nah, I must not have my NPOA right because the sights don't look right. They're going to look right. It's going to look just like it should look. The only thing that's going to happen 
is when you shoot, when you go into recoil, then that muscle is exerted onto the barrel again, and it pulls you off the target. All right? <clears throat> you need to make sure that you get your correct natural point of aim on your initial target, and then you take that correct NPOA with you on your shifts. And uh, I would do a very quick one-second NPOA check before I uh, fire on any of the targets. And because if you don't have your NPOA, it's not doing you any good anyway, right? If you don't have NPOA, you're just you're just wasting you're wasting rounds. They're just going to be going wherever they want to go because they're going to be having the muscle influence exerted on them. So make sure that you do a quick NPOA shift. And I tell folks that, especially starting off, that I'm not interested, at least when you're starting off, I'm not interested in you getting uh, 10 rounds, all 10 rounds in your stage two. I'm not interested in you getting all 10 rounds off. What I'm interested in when you're starting off is the rounds that you do shoot are all in the black. And uh, I try and tell folks that you could equate it to, uh, say you're uh, hunting on a safari in Africa, and you, uh, you out of the bush comes a, uh, uh, a water buffalo or a rhino, and it's charging at you. Now, you can, you can have a 30-round mag. You can have a beta mag. You could be shooting uh, uh, hundreds of rounds all around the rhinoceros or the water buffalo, and guess what? They don't care. They don't care. The only time you're going to get a response from them is when you put one round between the eyes, and that round pierces the skull and goes in and destroys the brain, and then the rhino goes down. That's the only time it is that the rhino is going to care that you're shooting. <clears throat> I'd much rather have one round in the first of the targets in the black on your stage two than ten rounds uh, scattered out through uh, the the three score and zero score. Because I'll tell you that speed will come. Speed will always come. The more you do something, the faster you get at it. I mean... When you first started tying your shoes as a kid uh, and you were trying to tie your shoes and it was taking you forever and your your parents were saying, here, let me help you. And you're going, no, no, I'm going to do it myself. And it took you, you know, five minutes to tie each shoe. Well, you, it doesn't take you five minutes anymore, does it? It probably takes you uh, five to ten seconds to tie each shoe. Speed will come, but you have to have the accuracy. So... <clears throat> And make sure that you get your initial natural point of aim, shift it onto the target, and begin your course of fire then. And then you can take the good natural point of aim with you to uh, the uh, to the rest of the targets as you move. And you have to make a shift. You cannot muscle to it. You have to make an NPOA shift to ensure that your uh, round is going to hit where you want it to hit. I don't know if you can hear that, but we're we're in the middle of a uh, pretty good storm here, and 
I'm sure the folks that are getting ready to uh, attend the Appleseed this weekend here are, are listening to the same thing. So if any of you folks listening are getting ready to attend the Davila uh, uh, December 17th, 18th event, have no fear, have no worries. We're going to have the event, rain or rain or sun. Uh, the only time we stop is for lightning. If we were doing the event today and we started getting lightning, then we'd probably uh, move it to a sheltered area and we would uh, we'd do some history and uh, we'd talk about the technique and stuff until we got uh, some clear skies again. Otherwise, we'll run it in, uh, in the cold and, and rain. <clears throat> All right, so that is the seated position. You're going to orient yourself approximately 30 or so degrees to the strong side. You're going to get down into your position. You're going to grab your mag, the correct mag, the two-round mag, put it into the rifle. You're going to chamber around, work the bolt, chamber around, take the safety off, and begin your course of fire. You're going to fire two rounds and two rounds only out of a two-round mag. You're going to drop that mag, put in the eight-round mag, work the bolt, and continue the course of fire. The course of fire for the... uh, for stage two, you're going to prep two and eight, and you're going to shoot uh, three, three, and four. All right? <clears throat> so you're going to fire two rounds at the first target, drop the mag, put the eight-round mag in, work the bolt, fire one additional round into that uh, first target. You're going to shift, actually physically shift your body, shift your NPOA onto the second target. You're going to fire three rounds there. Then you're going to shift again. You're going to shift your butt shift your position to bring your natural point of aim onto the third target and fire uh, the remaining four rounds into that target. That is your seated position, and that is stage two on the AQT. Now, let me stress again that the best way to, uh, to get this figured out is not at the range, when folks are yelling fire and uh, there are people around you shooting and stuff like that and and you're under a uh, uh, under a stopwatch, the best time to do this is going to be uh, at home in your bedroom. Practice getting down to that position until you have a uh, repeatable and sustainable position and then rehearse what you're going to do in seated on stage two. Rehearse uh, grabbing that mag, putting it in, working the bolt, safety off, bang, bang, drop the mag, new mag in, work the bolt, and continue your course of fire. The best way to do this is to practice it at home. Practice what you're going to do so that you have a muscle memory of it and, uh, and it's, it's carved a little path in your brain for this. That's where you're going to uh, bring your scores up. Uh, that's where you're going to hone and polish your techniques and your skills is rehearsing this at home. And then dry firing. You know, uh, you, if you come to an apple seed, we're going to talk to you about dry firing because in dry firing, uh, that is the key to becoming a rifleman, is dry firing. Because Shooting, anytime you're shooting live rounds, really all you're doing is using those live rounds to confirm 
that the skills and techniques that you have been practicing at home, uh, that they are indeed, that you're indeed doing it correctly. Because you shouldn't be using live rounds to, uh, to train yourself how to shoot. You should be doing that at home. You should be practicing at home. And you should have a plan on how you're going to uh, practice something. Uh, I use the stages of the AQT to practice for the AQT. And I use, I have a definite plan in mind. When I go to the range, I have a definite plan in mind on what I'm going to do when I get to the range. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to shoot this number of rounds in this position, holding my arm this way or my hand this way, <clears throat> to see if this is affecting what I'm doing and, or to see if what I've been practicing at home is indeed the correct way to do it. I'm using my range time to confirm that. And I have a plan when I go to the range. I just don't go out there and go, okay, i got a box of, uh, of rounds here, and i got my rifle, and i got a target. I'm going to put the target up and then... Uh, I don't know. I guess I'll just I'll shoot at the target some and then maybe go get a Coke and drink the Coke and then come back and shoot at the target some more because that's a complete waste of your time and your and your effort there, a complete waste of ammunition. You've got to have a plan on what you're going to do when you get to the range and what you want to see, what you want to, you've got to have a goal, what you want to see uh, at the end of your time at the range. And the only way to do that is to have a plan. The only way to hone your skills is by dry firing. The reason that dry firing uh, is so productive is because it allows you to practice uh, to practice executing the six steps. And you'll be able to do everything. And the only thing that you'll be missing out on is the report and the recall. However, you by the time you get to report and recoil, you've already received all the benefits that you're going to get uh, in your practice. Your mind does not know the difference between firing a dry fire round and a live fire round until there is the absence of the report and recall. And by that time, you've already gotten all the benefits from it. Matter of fact, you've even gotten more benefits because when you sit there and you shoot 100 dry fire rounds without a single recall or report, then what you're doing is you're teaching your body not to anticipate recall and report because there is none. You're teaching yourself to make the shot without worrying uh, without developing a flinch or a buck or a jerk, because there's not going to be a report or recall. And the old uh, adage of you you play like you practice is exactly what comes in here. If you teach yourself to shoot without blinking, without flinching or bucking, then that's what you're going to do when you fire an actual live round. You're going to fire it just like you trained yourself to. So, so every time you fire a dry fire round, you're getting a tremendous amount of benefits because uh, you're getting the same uh, you're getting the same benefits you'd get uh, actually more 
when you're shooting a live round, you're not uh, spending the money on the live round. The only thing you're missing is the report, the recoil, and the hole in the paper and the dust, all right? And you'll get those soon enough when you get to the range. But you want to hone your skills by by dry firing, all right? So I, I, I can't... I can't uh, uh, stress enough how important it is for you guys to do your dry firing. All right, it's important, and uh, <clears throat> and that's where you're going to uh, that's where you're going to make the difference between uh, between. A uh, sharpshooter and a rifleman score. All right, the reason I'm trying to, uh, the reason I'm, I'm slowing down my talking, I'm trying to do a couple of things at once. I'm trying to uh, load up the chat page again because it's uh, it's not wanting to uh, load up for me. It's saying that it can't find the server. So I don't know if that's the same thing is happening with you, with you guys, or uh, uh, or if it's just something uh, locally from me that uh, that I'm getting because of the storm. I don't know. Anyway, that anytime you hear me slowing down uh, my speech or it sounds like I'm drifting off to sleep or something, usually it's because I'm uh, uh, trying to to do something else while I'm talking. <clears throat> okay, well, enough of that. I'll just have to deal without that. And uh, what we're going to do, we're going to move on to a discussion of Washington's crossing of the Delaware. Now, you know that <clears throat> at the time of the uh, of the events at Trenton and Princeton, uh, the, the uh, American forces... <clears throat> had suffered a long series of problems, all right? And most recently to the event was they had lost the uh, Fort Washington and Fort Lee. Uh, General Washington had put Green, General Green, in charge of the forts at uh, Washington and Lee. And these forts were supposed to guard the river uh, approach to New York. That's why they kept the forts there, so that they could defend the river and keep the uh, the British fleet from moving up the river to attack and uh, uh, disembark troops at New York. However, the British had shown on several occasions that they could they could pass by the forts with any trouble. So, right then and there, you have to you have to ask yourself if they can get by the forts without any trouble, well, then why why keep troops invested there? Because uh, it would be easy for the regulars to uh, to take the troops, and, and like I said, most of all, is if you if the reason for the forts is a stop movement on the river, and they're not stopping it, then you don't need to have the forts there. However, Washington left Green in charge of that, and Green decided that Washington, Fort Washington, could be defended. Well, turns out that it couldn't be defended. And uh, the British captured the fort, and we lost uh, 
a couple of thousand men and all their supplies there, along with hundreds of cannon, thousands of uh, muskets, all of the uh, all of the logistics that go with uh, 3,000 men. Lee, Fort Lee, was left, and it was just about overrun. Now, once again, why they didn't evacuate Fort Lee the minute that Washington was, I don't understand. And I think this was just during the period that that Washington was uh, very indecisive at that time. He was he didn't know which way to go. He had, didn't have much intelligence on what was happening. Anyway, Fort Lee, right before it was attacked, they evacuated it, but but they weren't able to evacuate anything with it. Once again, they lost, uh, I believe, close to 100 cannon, all their tents, food, cooking utensils, everything. They just barely got out with themselves and their muskets. And uh, then they were driven... Uh, all the way across New Jersey, and finally across the Delaware. Uh, Cornwallis was uh, in pursuit of them, and uh, the only way that they escaped was in the first crossing of the Delaware. Washington had all the uh, the boats with uh, in over 100 miles in each direction. He had them all rounded up, got his men across, and then destroyed... Uh, either destroyed the boats or kept the boats that uh, he'd crossed them in with on his side of the Delaware. And uh, and like I said, this was a uh, – this the whole retreat was a crushing thing for, for Washington's army. And uh, <clears throat> it, it, it seemed that – the uh, that the continental forces the american patriots were uh, were on their last leg washington had lost uh, well he'd lost more than half of his available men to illness to desertion and to the expiration of their enlistments you know most of the folks had enlisted and the enlistments ran for either uh, 6 months or 1 year and for most of the folks, the enlistments were up, and uh, and they were going home. They weren't going to stay in this any longer. Uh, it was winter time. There was no food, no money, no clothes, no shelters, uh, nothing. Uh, the men were in near half naked, and in the middle of winter with no food, and. Uh, they all had families at home, and and they and I'm, I've got to believe that a good many of them felt that that, that they were at the end of this, and uh, and whether they stayed or, or left wasn't going to make any difference because uh, because they were at the end of it. Anyway, <clears throat> the uh, the. Winter of 1776 was uh, approaching an end, and Washington's crossing, his initial crossing of the Delaware, and his uh, rounding up of all the boats and stuff was uh, was a smart decision. He'd put the Delaware River, which was a it's a very wide river, between himself and the forces of Lord Cornwallis. Cornwallis had gone on to occupy New Jersey, and his troops had occupied New Jersey, and they'd set up outposts. Uh, all across the Jersey frontier. Uh, 
at the same time, the state of New Jersey had pretty much uh, had pretty much kind of aligned themselves with what they considered to be uh, the winning side in this event, and that was Cornwallis's troops, the British. A lot of them had uh, had signed oaths of loyalty when they were put out uh, when the Howe brothers uh, uh, put them out, and they had signed uh, oaths of loyalty to the uh, to the king. And they figured that uh, that was the only way that they were going to survive. And also during this time, though, as a common uh, a common event in, with occupational forces is there was a great deal of plundering going on and a great deal of uh of the civilians were molested by the by the troops now when I say molested of course I don't mean like uh the in the the current usage of the word I just mean like uh, they were beaten they were uh harassed all of their food was taken and these are from the folks who would even profess loyalty to the king and a great deal of this was caused by uh, the German troops, the Hessians, who uh, were part of the occupational force. They couldn't, they didn't even speak English the most part, and they, they weren't really good at determining who was supposed to be loyal and who wasn't. They just went and they took food and, and clothing and gear and stuff from whoever whoever was there. Now, this caused a great deal of anger and started to cause a turn of the tide in the support for the uh, the regulars, for the British regulars, for the for England, but they didn't have much of an option because apparently the uh, colonial forces were not going to make any headway, so they were just having to suffer through it. Well, finally, uh, Washington's forces, Washington finally decided that. Better to do something than nothing, and uh, even if they tried something and they failed, it couldn't be any worse than what was going on. He was going to lose a majority of the troops that that he had with him, which wasn't that many. He had around three thousand troops left. Uh, he was going to lose a majority of them on January one when their enlistments ran out. Anyway, here's a uh, a letter, and I'm going to read you a letter here from. <clears throat> And this is from the Spirit of 76, uh, published by Castle Books. And uh, this is a letter that Reed, who was Washington's uh, uh, assistant, wrote to Washington on uh, December 22nd, 1776. He says, We are all of opinion, my dear General, that something must be attempted to revive our expiring credit, give our cause some degree of reputation, and prevent a total depreciation of the continental money, which is coming on very fast, that even a failure cannot be more fatal than to remain in our present situation. Now, what are you saying about the continental money is that they were starting to print their own money, right? But you have to understand that the money is, if if there is not a, uh, if there's not a, a country to back it up, then there the money is no good. You know, if there's no if there is no continental forces, then there is no uh, 
there is no America. And if there's no America, then the money that America has been printing is no good. So if people start thinking, they say, okay, well, our force, our side is going to lose, and they're going to have to start getting rid of that money, and that money's not going to be worth anything because they're saying, look, I want to buy, uh, I want to buy a loaf of bread, and maybe the loaf of bread is uh, one kind of dollar. And you go, well, I don't know, man, because that money's really not any good anymore because you guys are losing. Well, I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you five continental dollars. I don't know because, like I said, I don't think that money's any good. Okay, I'll have to, I'll give you twenty. And the guy says, oh, give me fifty, and I'll take the chance on that. So now, the one dollar continental loaf of bread is going is to cost fifty because there is no faith in the currency. Does that sound familiar? All right. <clears throat> So Reed is begging Washington to do something. Do something to try and bolster the faith in our economy, in our in our money. <clears throat> All right. In a little time, the Continental Army will be dissolved. The militia must be taken before their spirits and patience are exhausted. And the scattered, divided state of the enemy affords us a fair opportunity to try what our men will do when called to an offensive attack. Will it not be possible, my dear General, for your troops or such part of them as can act with advantage to make a diversion or something more at or about Trenton? The greater the alarm, the more likely the success will be to the attacks. If we could possess ourselves again of New Jersey or or any considerable part of it, the effects would be greater than if we had never left it. Allow me to hope that you will consult your own good judgment and spirit and not let the goodness of your heart subject you to the influence of opinions from men in every respect your inferiors. Something must be attempted before the 60 days expire which the commissioners have allowed for. However, many affect to despise it. It is evident that a very serious attention is paid to it, and I am confident that unless some more favorable appearance attends our arms and cause before that time, a very large number of the militia officers here will follow the example of those of Jersey and take benefit from it. I will not disguise my own sentiments that our cause is desperate and hopeless if we do not take the opportunity of the collection of troops at present to strike some stroke. Our affairs are hastening fast to ruin if we do not revive them by some happy event. Delay with us is now equal to a total defeat. Be not deceived, my dear General, with small Flattering appearances. We must not suffer ourselves to be lulled into security and inaction because the enemy does not cross the river. It is but a reprieve. The execution is in the more certain, for I am very clear they can and will cross the river in spite of any opposition we can give them. Pardon the freedom I have used, the love of my country, a wife, and four children in the enemy's hands. The respect and attachment I have to you, the ruin and poverty that must attend me and thousands of others will plead my excuse for so much freedom. Your obedient and affectionate humble servant, Joseph Reed. Now, I told you, he wrote this uh, on December 22nd, and he was saying, look, anything we do, anything is better than nothing, because right now, us not doing anything is defeat. Us not doing anything is going to cause our defeat as sure as, uh, even worse, than being beaten in an attack. Because at least if we go out and attack, we're showing that we're still alive. 
we're still able to go out there and attack and do something. Even if we, even if we get beaten by not doing anything, then we no longer exist. If we no longer exist, then our currency is worthless. If we no longer exist, then the folks, uh, a lot of the militia, the militia officers, etc., are going to say, look, man, we, we stand a better chance by trying to negotiate a separate peace uh, and signing the oaths of, the oaths of loyalty uh, to England than we do staying with this non-existent army. So Reed is pleading with him to do something, anything, to show that the the Continental Army uh, is still alive. <clears throat> All right. Uh, Washington writes back to Reed uh, on December 23, 1776. The bearer is sent down to know whether your plan was attempted last night, and if not, to inform you that Christmas Day at night, one hour before day, is the time fixed upon for our attempt on Trenton. For heaven's sake, keep this to yourself, as the discovery of it may prove fatal to us. Our numbers, sorry I am to say, being less than I had any conception of, but necessity, dire necessity, will, nay, must, justify an attempt. Prepare, and in concert with Griffin, attack as many of their posts as you possibly can with a prospect of success. The more we can attack at the same instant, the more confusion we shall spread and greater good will result from it. If I had not been fully convinced before of the enemy's designs, I have now ample testimony of their intentions to attack Philadelphia so soon as the ice will afford the means of conveyance. We could not ripen matters for our attack before the time mentioned in the first part of this letter. So much out of sorts and so much in want of everything are the troops under Sullivan, etc. Let me know by careful express the plan you are to pursue. The letter herewith sent forward on to a Philadelphia. I could wish it to be in time for the Southern Post departure, which will, I believe, be 11 o'clock tomorrow. I am, dear sir, your obedient servant, George Washington. P.S. I have ordered our men to be provided with three days' provisions, ready cooked, with which and their blankets they are to march. For if we are successful, which heaven grant and the circumstances favor, we may push on. I shall direct every ferry and ford to be well guarded, and not a soul suffered to pass without an officer's going down with a permit. Do the same with you. All right. So... What they're trying to say is <clears throat> they're going to try, and, and when he says he has intelligence of this, uh, Washington was obsessed with gathering intelligence, and he had to be because there was no, there was no way else of knowing what, the, what your enemy was doing without gaining some type of intelligence. He was always ready to pay his last dollar to gain intelligence, and there are several stories of, uh, of how, while he was at, uh, his position there on the Delaware that he was using in uh, intelligence and he was using spies and I believe it I believe I read this in Washington's Crossing uh, I'm going to read it again before Dr. Fisher comes on I believe there was one of the stories by uh, I don't remember who it was now they were talking that uh, there was there was a man that troops had captured they said they couldn't understand because he was close to their camp, 
making this like a huge noise, a presentation, cracking a whip and stuff like that. They finally went down and they captured him and brought him up to the brig and put him in the brig. Well, Washington asked who the prisoner was, and they told him, and he said, well, bring him to me. And he personally interrogated this prisoner without anyone else in the room with him. Then this prisoner was later taken back to the brig, and Washington had a key for the brig, taken back to the brig, and somehow during the night he escaped without breaking any of the locks or anything. Apparently somehow the lock had been open and the prisoner had escaped. <clears throat> well, uh, it's thought that this prisoner was actually a double agent working for Washington. He made sure that he was captured so that he could be brought there and interrogated, and then he was released, and it was made sure that everybody had known that he had escaped so that he could make his way back to the British lines and report that Washington's forces there was no way they could make any kind of an attack because they were scattered and they were all gone and hungry and starving, etc. And Washington needed this information to be sent out as quickly as he could before his attack. And he also needed to know the disposition of the forces that he was facing across the Jerseys. And he knew that the, uh, that the post at Trenton, or the Hessian outpost, that the posts were instead of having, having all their troops gathered together in one place, they had formed up outposts uh, of small numbers of troops uh, along the uh, the Jersey frontier. And Washington knew a great deal now of the disposition that he learned from this particular spy and several others. So what he, the plan was to have several folks attacking uh, all at once and from different places, and causing confusion, and he was going to attack Trenton. <clears throat> All right. Uh, this next letter is from Henry Knox. And uh, I also want to tell you that Henry Knox was a very important part of both these battles, right? Knox was the bookseller who... Uh, who learned his trade by reading books about the uh, the art of warfare and taught himself to be uh, a, a an artillery officer and he was instrumental in breaking the siege of Boston because he brought an idea to Washington which was they would go to Saratoga. Uh, many, many miles away, in the dead of winter, they would go to Saratoga, and they would gather uh, a huge number of cannon and bring them back in the dead of winter to Boston, where they could mount them on, uh, on the heights there, and they could uh, threaten Boston by mounting the artillery on the heights. And that eventually caused... Uh, the retreat out of Boston, the cause the surrender of Boston. And this was Knox's idea. And this was no small thing that he did. Uh, at some, I believe I talked to you one night about uh, Knox is going to get the artillery, but we're talking about uh, some pieces weighing 10 tons. We're talking about huge uh, 
uh, huge pieces of artillery that had to be brought back across frozen rivers in places where Knox had to chop holes in the ice. He had to continually chop holes in the ice of the frozen river so that water would come up through the holes, get on top of the ice and freeze to thicken the ice so that he could pass over. They dropped a couple of uh, the multi-ton pieces of artillery into the rivers, and they had to build something and send people down into the frozen water to get the cannon back out. So they could go back on their journey, uh, take them to the heights, install them in the heights, threaten Boston and force the surrender of Boston with it. Right, so Knox had already done that. Now he was put in charge of the uh, logistics for crossing the Delaware to make these attacks. And at the first Battle of Trenton and uh, at the second Battle of Trenton and at the, uh, uh, the Battle of Princeton, Knox was a key figure here because of his understanding of artillery. Uh, he was able to, at the first Battle of Trenton, he was able to emplace, before the battle began, emplace the artillery in such a way that it covered the streets where the uh, where the Hessian troops were f- supposed to form up. So when they dashed out of their barracks to form up in the streets, they were immediately met uh, by a hail of grape shot, which shredded their ranks uh, and caused them to begin to retreat right then and there because he... He had in place. He did the same thing again the next uh, at the Second Battle of Trenton, when uh, Cornwallis and his troops were attacking. They could have uh, crossed the Assunpink uh, River and attacked Washington troops uh, on the night of the Second Battle of Trenton, but they couldn't because of uh, because of. Knox's placement of the artillery, and because he had taken, he had worked out the logistics to take so many cannon and shot and gunpowder with them on the second battle, that he was able to uh, stop a much greater sized force with his emplacement of artillery and the continual use of it, the continual correct use of it, that he was shredding the attacking British regulars so that they could not cross the Assunpink uh, River in order to attack Washington's forces that night, which allowed Washington to make a night march and a night retreat out of that position, slip around the British regular forces, and attack Princeton the next morning. This was all due to Knox's, first of all, his logistics ability, because he was put in charge of getting the thousands of men and the hundreds of horses and artillery pieces and everything across the river uh, that night on the attack. Let me tell you, this river is a long, wide river with a very uh, strong current. It's in the middle of winter in rain, in a rainstorm, and the river is frozen over. When you see the pictures of Washington crossing the Delaware, now I doubt that he stood in the boat like that, but the large, the huge chunks of ice are true. The ice uh, was was thick on the river, big, huge chunks of ice, a strong storm blowing the boats downstream, 
and yet they were able to make it across that night, march through the night, and attack Trenton, attack the Hessians at Trenton, and defeat them and capture 900 prisoners, all without a single loss of life in the battle. Okay? They killed, uh, I believe they killed over 150 or so of the Hessians and wounded another 150 or so and then captured 900. None of the uh, Continental troops, none of the militia, were killed. The only two deaths that night were deaths from exposure. That was two guys uh, who, during the night march, had decided to rest for a minute, and they froze to death when they sat down. That's how cold it was. It was cold enough that they froze to death uh, on the way there. So, uh, to me, this is one of the most amazing battles that was fought. Number one, you had the logistics of it. You have these folks crossing and recrossing a huge river in the middle of a storm, in the middle of a thunderstorm uh, in winter where it's, it's, the wind is blowing tremendously and it's sleeting and raining. And like I said, this is in the middle of winter. And they're crossing the river. And a lot of folks, in order to get out on the other side, they couldn't get the boats all the way to the bank. So these guys had to try and walk on the 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 ice that was there, the ice chunks, and they ended up falling into the river in winter. And so now they're wet up to their waists or up to their shoulders. And then they get in line and they march to battle. There's no fire. There's no uh, place to get dry clothes on. They don't have any winter clothes. They're not wearing Gore-Tex. They, they're soaked, soaking wet, and they... Uh, they're marching on in the battle, crossing and recrossing the river. And uh, I'm just, I'm always amazed by it. And then the fact that this battle is a battle that was a turning point in uh, in the American Revolutionary War. All right, let me read you this uh, letter real quick. This is from Henry Knox. He wrote to his wife, and this is after the first battle of Trenton. All right, written on the Delaware River near Trenton, December 28, 1776. Trenton is an open town, situated nearly on the banks of the Delaware, accessible on all sides. Our army was scattered along the river for nearly 25 miles. Our intelligence agreed that the force of the enemy in Trenton was from two to 3,000, with about six field cannon, and they were pretty secure in their situation, and that they were Hessians, no British troops. A hardy design was formed of attacking the town by storm. Accordingly, a part of the army consisting of about 2,500 or 3,000 troops was uh, was dispatched <coughs> and passed the river on Christmas night with almost infinite difficulty, with 18 field pieces. The floating ice in the river made the labor almost incredible. However, perseverance accomplished what at first seemed impossible. About 2 o'clock, the troops were all on the Jersey side. We then were about nine miles from the object. The night was cold and stormy. It hailed with great violence. The troops marched with the most profound silence and good order. They arrived by two routes at the same time. The storm 
Then we forced and entered about a half mile from town was an advance guard on each road consisting of a captain's guard. These we forced, and we entered the town with them pell-mell, and here succeeded a scene of war which I had often conceived but I had never saw before. The hurry, fright, and confusion of the enemy was not unlike that which will be when the last trumpet shall sound. They endeavored to form in the streets the heads of which we had previously the possession of with cannon and howitzers. These, in the twinkling of an eye, cleared the streets. The backs of the houses were resorted to for shelter. These provided ineffectual. The musketry soon dislodged them. Finally, they were driven to the town into an open plain beyond, and here they formed in an instant. During the contest in the streets, measures were taken for putting an entire stop to their retreat by posting troops and cannon in such passes and roads as was possible for them to get away by. The poor fellows, after they were formed on the plain, saw themselves completely surrounded. The only resource left was to force their way through numbers unknown to them. The Hessians lost part of their cannon in the town. They did not relish the project of forcing and were obliged to surrender upon the spot with all their artillery. Six brass pieces, army's colors, etc. A Colonel Rao commanded, who was wounded, the number of prisoners was above 1,200, including officers, all Hessians. There were a few killed or wounded uh, on either side. Now, he says this, but he doesn't know that there were none. After having marched off the prisoners and secured the cannon, stores, etc., we returned to the place nine miles distance where we had embarked. Providence seemed to have smiled upon every part of this enterprise. Great advantages may be gained from it if we take the proper steps. At another post, we have pushed over the river 2,000 men. Today, another body, and tomorrow the whole army will follow. It must give a sensible pleasure to every friend of the rights of man to think how much intrepidity our people pushed the enemy and prevented their forming in the town. Now, one of the things that he doesn't mention is that they, they recrossed the river back, and this time with an additional 900 uh, prisoners and all of the goods that they had taken from there. And that's enough, uh, you know, enough supplies and stuff to take care of uh, 1,200 men. We're talking about maybe, uh, I don't know, 20, 30 wagon loads of gear or more. And then all of the prisoners. They took all of these folks back across the Delaware, and then a couple of nights later they're going to repeat this again. And they were going to uh, fight the... British to a standstill at the Second Battle of Trenton, then slip away during the night in an absolutely fantastic night march to whip around the lines and attack Princeton and defeat the British at Princeton and take all of the uh, the British forces there prisoner and all of the goods. Okay, guys, uh, we've got about 60 seconds left here. I want to tell you uh, thanks, everybody, to tuning in tonight. And I'll let you know it will either be next week, next Thursday, or the Thursday after – We'll have uh, Dr. Fisher on to uh, to talk about his book, uh, Washington's Crossing. And uh, so I want you guys to uh, make sure that you put that down so that you can uh, be there for it. All right, we'll see you this next uh, Thursday. Uh, thank you guys for uh, tuning in. God bless and keep everyone there. And we'll see you next uh, this uh, next Thursday. All right, uh, have a good night. And... Uh, and we'll see you next Thursday, uh, 7 p.m. Central.
Just how free is 